Welcome to Bright Now, a podcast about parenting and educating talented kids, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. I'm your host, Jonathan Plucker, the Julian C. Stanley Endowed Professor of Talent Development at CTY and Johns Hopkins University. My guest today once said, talent doesn't have a zip code, but turning that attitude into a reality is difficult. And there's no question that African-American, Latinx, Native American, and low-income students face barriers to developing their talents. In the future, we're going to do several episodes exploring issues related to equity in gifted education and talent development. To help us start exploring this topic, I'm honored to have Professor James Moore as my guest today. Professor Moore is the Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion at Ohio State University, where he also serves as the EHE Distinguished Professor of Urban Education and the Director of the Todd Anthony Bell National Resort Center on the African American Male. Among the top experts on the educational and psychological experiences of black men and boys, Dr. Moore has also served on the Board of Directors of the National Association for Gifted Children. Last but not least, James is a good friend of mine, and I'm very excited to have him with us today. James, welcome to Bright Now. Hi, how are you doing? So you and I have talked about these issues um, off and on for years. We've had really interesting discussions, and I'm just really excited to have you on today. Thanks for doing it so we can essentially share the things that we've been talking about as we try to crack this nut, so to speak. It's a very tricky one. Let's start. I'm, I'm just interested in having you share the unique barriers that you think disadvantaged students face when trying to develop their talents? Well, one of the things uh, that I've noticed through my own research and through the work uh, that I have done in terms of the programmatic efforts that I've been involved in over the years, uh, too often underrepresented groups are seen as a part of a group rather than the individual. And oftentimes a stigma of the inferiority follows them everywhere they go, from the mother's womb until um, until the all throughout the educational pipeline. But what I've discovered is the first factor uh, that I would use as a header is educational factors. The second factor is family cultural factors, and the third factor is what I would call social and community factors, and the last factor would be individual factors. Some of the educational factors uh, that I've noticed through my own work is that uh, negative interactions with educational professionals. And many years ago, in 2003, I published a paper with some colleagues in the high school journal, and we wanted to look at what factors uh, influence educational aspirations for African-American students. We looked at locus of control, cognitive ability, uh, income, students' perceptions, how the teacher perceive them, students' perceptions, how uh, school counselors perceive them. As you probably can imagine, the perceptions have more impact uh, on the students' educational aspirations. So in other words, when a student, even when they had the cognitive ability, even when their family income was high, if they perceive the teacher not perceiving them having the ability to be successful, it had negative consequences on their educational outcomes. And so with teachers and educators, we always communicate, but it's very important that we train educators to communicate accurately and consistently uh, support and care in their instruction. Right. The other one is under educational factors would be uh, the absence of challenge in school. 
uh, too often students, we know in the research that all AP, all gifted programs are not created equally. Uh, unfortunately, we see educational malpractice taking place all across America where uh, sometimes gifted and talented programs, you're in a program, but it's, it lacks the kind of rigor that is indicative of seamlessly moving uh, up the gifted and talented uh, pipeline. You know, James, on uh, that point, I'm always reminded of the second President Butch's quote, the soft bigotry of low expectations. And he, he got mocked a little bit for that. But that's that really is what we're talking about, right, is is yeah. just not believing that these students can perform at high levels. So even like you just said, even when we can provide them with advanced programming, it's not rigorous, so yeah. they're paying this big opportunity cost, and so they're losing on the back end too, even when we think we're helping them. I think that's a really great point. Yeah, it's solvable. I think we could address it. Uh, and I don't think teachers naturally, some teachers think they have rigorous classrooms, but uh, we don't provide, classrooms increasingly uh, tend to be siloed and educators are not interested in always receiving feedback, continuous improvement. I think we need to foster continuous improvement uh, within the classroom, not only among the students, but the people who deliver the instruction uh, for to the students. The other broad category, and there are numerous to mention, but I'm not gonna mention them all, uh, is what I would group under family culture factors. And the family culture factors sometimes Family dynamics have sometimes negative uh, consequences on educational outcomes for gifted and talented students. Some, not saying all, uh, strange, strained relations within the family. Um, and when those things happen, they have uh, negative consequences in the classroom. Uh, we know another thing that is common, it's an issue, is how do we educate students who come from you know, economically disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, we know poverty, um, you know, not that students can't learn at a very high level, but we know sometimes the challenges that are centered around poverty have negative impacts on students' learning. Uh, another issue that is happening, you see it across uh, uh, class structures, is the minimum parental academic monitoring guidance. Increasingly, uh, parents are not being as engaged in, in their uh, students' educational attainment as, as they should. Mm. And what I mean by that, increasingly in middle-class households, you have two parents working professional jobs, and in turn, it sometimes have impact on students learning. The parents can provide the resources for the students, but oftentimes that is what we know in, in, in the social science literature that is more than just offering resources and opportunities. Mm. Sometimes meaningful, um, um, meaningful engagement is more important than sometimes the resources that the school provide for mm. students. And I mean monitoring, making sure that the students don't fall in between the gap, uh, monitoring their homework and their progress in school. And so it's very important that families understand 
uh, their importance in the educational progress of their students. Yeah, that's a really important distinction that we need to talk about, right, is that class and income, uh, essentially socioeconomic status, as, as, as researchers would talk about it, <laughs> that intersects with issues of race and issues of gender um, and makes a complex situation even more difficult to actually address, right? Yep, yep. And, and you know this, it's, it's very difficult to engage democracy at a very high level when a group of individuals are not afforded the opportunity to have a quality education. And in America, we should be appalled. We see educational malpractice taking the place all across this country. And in turn, it's only going to impact us uh, are in ways that we can't even comprehend. Right. You know, it's going to be hard for us to maintain our global edge if we don't really come together and think about what's, what are some of the collective goods that we can do to improve quality education for the whole country. What are some uh, strategies uh, that you tend to share with people, um, especially when you know they see their sons and daughters struggling, uh, dealing with these issues of, uh, you know, um, under-resourced schools, bias, uh, family issues. Well, you know, some of the things that I, I I first tell students, what are the, I mean, tell families and, and educators. First, we need to know. Uh, what are important attributes for scholastic achievement? And, you know, um, it's pretty salient in the in the scientific literature. And these are some of the many things that I say uh, that is very important and that we need to develop a, a structure and support systems around these kind of, that foster these attributes. And one is a strong internal locus control, uh, helping students with their aspirations because oftentimes, uh, not that I want to be a dream killer, but sometimes students' aspirations, there's a disconnect, a major disconnect in what they, how they need to perform in the classroom or what the kinds of courses they're engaged in uh, and what their aspirations are. Um, not only that positive belief in self, Increasingly, I'm, I'm very concerned across America, uh, the anxiety that students have when they uh, enter rigorous academic spaces. And in turn, you find that students, even when they do really well in these classes, uh, they don't always have a positive belief in themselves or a belief in their capability. Uh, to me, that's fundamentally could be a challenge for them uh, if we don't sometimes intervene. Uh, and, and, and the more confident a student has in its ability, uh, the more likely that they were uh, stick to um, whatever their, uh, stick to the situation or the, uh, or regardless of how rigorous the course may be. And then the other one is maturity, academic and social confidence, positive early school experiences. You know, too often young people are not having the kind of positive experiences. Uh, and by not having those experiences, it, they become jaded about their educational experiences as they continue to progress. 
strong soft skills. Uh, this is one of the big things that I'm noticing among males um, in general and males of color in particular. You know, first of all, I ask some questions um, sometimes to young men that matriculate on our campus. You know, you, 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 when you're given a talk, you say, who, who pulled out a sheet of paper? Who pulled out that laptop to actually take notes? And then if they did take notes, what do the, are the notes of, of quality? Hmm. Women uh, tend to take more notes. They tend to be more legible. And, to, and they tend to have more breath than the notes <laughs> um, of young men. Right. And in turn, these kinds of things impact young men's skills, even though they do really well on the test. But sometimes it doesn't play out when they actually take the class. The other piece is self-regulation and task oriented. You know, how do we help young men become more self-regulated that their parents don't have to uh, ride them every day just to do their homework. Yeah, they got the grades, but when they matriculate to college, whatever it took <laughs> for them to get through high school is probably going to take the same kinds of things for them to be successful in college. And when they don't have those kind of reinforcements, oftentimes we see students underachieve or lowerachieve or fall way beyond their capability. So we know that the more a student is prepared, the more likely they would do well in an advanced academic program or even beyond that. But too often, our students are not afforded the necessary preparation for their academic and career, potential academic and career trajectories. So preparation is critical and it's very important that we, we really crosswalk the, the various levels of preparations that a student need to have, or well, I guess thinking about the pathways. Uh, James, this has been fascinating. Um, I, do you have any sort of closing thoughts, things people should keep in mind when they're thinking about these diversity issues? When we think about these diversity issues, we need to think about what Perky talks about when he coined his, his theory around invitational education slash counseling. And he says, we have to be more deliberate and more inviting in the educational space. And he says if some of the places that we need to explore in terms of creating the inviting space for young people. And, and what I mean by that, we should adapt to students rather than wanting students to adapt to the schools. We need more schools that are student-centered, not adult-centered. And so he talks about the five P's, people, programs, policies, processes, and um, places. So the people, who are the people? Make sure that they align when we're talking about advanced academics, that they have the necessary training, that they're offering what we want to offer, and, and knowing who the stakeholders holders are and the role that they play in fostering a rigorous academic environment. The second thing is, is when I would talk about policies. We have policies across America. I had a colleague and I, we were asked to do a commission paper on uh, the status of gifted and talented programs at 20 of the largest school districts for African-American males. We, you can be in a predominantly black school district uh, and you can still see African-American males underrepresented. And some, when we did this paper, we looked at across the nation, 
we have some school districts have policies. If your parents don't come to PTA, uh, the kids can't be in gifted and talented programs. If the kids miss so many days, they can't be in a gifted and talented program. Or if the parents don't hand deliver the application, you can't be in a gifted and talented program. So we have policies that get in the way of some of this and processes when you try to appeal those things, some of these families become so fatigued because it's so rigorous. I can say in my school district, I say to myself, if I didn't know much about gifted and talented program, I don't know how parents, and I, I like to think I know quite a bit about it. I just don't know how parents fill out those applications and put forth the best application for their kids to get in. It doesn't have to be that sophisticated and complex to kind of wheeze individuals out. So in other words, and, and, and we have to have programs that one, foster academic excellence, but not only that, there's some talent development we can do before students get to that point. And so we need to have programs that foster all those things. And so those are the some of the many things that I would highlight uh, that I think is very important. My friend, I really appreciate you coming on with us today and uh, sharing all this extremely helpful information. Uh, thank you for being on right now. Thank you for the opportunity. That's it for this episode of Bright Now. Tell us what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes by emailing your suggestions to brightnowpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Bright Now, Support us by sharing the podcast with friends on social media, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Bright Now is produced by Jonathan Plucker, Tracy Guerin, and Trisha Schellenbach. Audio production by Iris Starkangelo and the team at Clean Cuts, a Three C's company. Our score was written by Austin Coughlin from Noise Distillery. Special thanks to CTY's Interim Executive Director, Amy Shelton. Bright Now is underwritten by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, a nonprofit dedicated to identifying and developing the talents of academically advanced students worldwide. Find us on the web at cty.jhu.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.